0: Millions lose power because of a winter storm in Texas and thousands are faced with skyrocketing utility bills that they cannot pay. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Deepening unemployment, a looming wave of evictions, massive and widening inequality, there's no denying it. Capitalism is in crisis and capitalism is the crisis. We are excited to have Professor Richard Wolff join us for our regular weekly segment where we talk about the biggest stories related to the economy, the state of the working class and the crimes of big business. We also talk about how the economy can be reconstituted on a new basis so that the needs of people and the planet come before profit. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work and the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Be sure to check out his work at rdwolf.com. That's rdwolf Professor Wolff, welcome back.
1: Thank you very much, Brian. Glad to be here.
0: You're in New York where we're used to having snow. It used to be snowier, but still not a big shock. It is quite a shock when it snows in Texas. But what's even more shocking, Professor Wolf, is that because of a winter storm, yes, an unusually severe one, but not something that's a once in a century or once in a millennium type event hundreds of thousands of people lost power. People actually froze to death in their homes, old people, young people, even children. We want to talk with you about the weird, crazy, exceptional character of the American capitalist system and how it has played out in terms of the delivery of energy services to people in Texas. But I have to begin this, Professor Wolf, by asking you if you have any second thoughts about joining the School of Economists. I'm looking at the New York Times. They quote an economist named William W. Hogan. He's a professor of global energy policy at Harvard's Kennedy School, and he is considered the architect of Texas energy market. He said in an interview this past week, that the high prices reflected, this is the high prices in Texas, some of the high prices were $16,000 for those who are lucky enough to have their heat and lights stay on for that week, that these high prices reflected the market performing as it was designed. Quote, this is The Economist, as you get closer and closer to the bare minimum, these prices get higher and higher, which is what you want. What you want. He's the designer or one of them, Professor Wolf, of this system.
1: Well, all I can tell you is when I uh, spent my four undergraduate years at Harvard, I encountered no end of people like that. And I was astonished and horrified by what I heard as a young man. And you're just reminding me of all of that, which uh, I'm not happy about, but I am in no way surprised. That is conventional, mainstream, neoclassical economics. That's what Mr. Hogan, I don't know him personally, but that's what he learned as I did. That's what he has taught all his life. I have had to do much the same. So when you present him with an immediate problem, He trots out the theory that he knows. It's the old idea of supply and demand. What happened in Texas is a textbook. The supply crashed because of the cold weather, because of the fact that the cold weather messed up bringing oil and gas out of the ground uh, for all kinds of reasons. You cut back on the supply of electricity. Meanwhile, the demand for electricity went up because it was cold and everybody wanted to use electricity to heat their homes and all the rest of it. So the demand for electricity went up, the supply of electricity went down, and the market then does what markets do. It basically engages in a process of bidding. In Texas, it was bidding by local energy companies for the scarce electricity, or they did the same for scarce supplies of oil and gas, and they bid against each other, and the sellers of this thing realize that they can jack up the price. When they do, those who can't afford the higher price drop away, but if there are still more people who want it, then they can keep raising the price until all those who can't afford it have dropped by the wayside, can't buy anymore. And all that's left are the people who can pay the now much, much higher prices. And that's how markets work. They are an allocation system. They are a rationing system. Only the interesting thing is they don't ration scarce supplies according to some notion of fairness or some notion of need or some notion of basic human decency, they allocate it under a different rule. If you got the money, you get it. And if you don't have the money, you don't get it. And he's right. That's how markets work. That's how they were designed to work. And they are screwing millions of people in Texas while driving up the price So on the one hand, those who sell it can make a bundle and those who can afford to buy it can continue to enjoy what the rest of the people are denied. How that squares with any basic notion of decency, fairness, equality, morality is a mystery to me. And to be fair it was a mystery when I was 18 years old and studying at Harvard, and it's a mystery now many years later. The ability of the, of the Professor Hogan's of this world to suspend all moral sensitivity, to be happy to say that there were children who died in Texas because they could not access fuel or electricity, while other people who had money were able to access. This doesn't bother you, but you know, that, that's what markets do. They don't just allocate scarce goods to those able to pay, but much more damaging. They undercut morality and ethics. They teach people to believe what Professor Hogan said, that this is the way it could be and should be, And that they will not engage, let's call it, the moral, political, and ethical horror of what is going on.
0: It's hard to think of someone who could say the system worked last week in Texas just as we want it to work. And you see the human suffering, and you see, as you pointed out, young people literally dying from hypothermia in their homes in Texas in Texas, and the economist can say from the comfort of his professorial chair, the system is working, then you think, you know, capitalism takes a set of human beings and makes them almost unrecognizable as humans, except perhaps in a zoological sense. You know, Professor Hogan is a human in some ways. Zoologically, he's like other humans. But when you think about most humans, you can't look at a situation like that in Texas, and certainly you can't be one of those people, your family freezing to death and say, hey, it's just the kind of system we want, that this system rewards through supply and demand. And it's not even supply and demand. They're all market manipulations because what can people do actually? I mean, we can't go shopping and decide tomorrow, hey, I want to get a different electric company or I want to have my heat generated somewhere else. It's not like that. It's not like going to the market and deciding, oh, I like this vegetable rather than that vegetable. I mean, the whole thing is so skewed and at the same time so normalized.
1: Well, you know, also there is a, you know, Mr. Hogan, if you confronted him, would back down in many ways. The kind of thing he said is the thing you say when you have a room full of people who think just like you. But if you get a critic, and there are many of us, we could make Mr. Hogan eat half the words he said. He Even he would have to. For example, if you had a care, you would have long ago figured out that there will be occasional cold snaps or other kinds of natural disasters. Excessive heat could do the same when you would have the risk of a shortfall in supply coinciding with an increase in demand. And then you, you understand the very theory Mr. Hogan teaches that this will make prices spike and that will make people who haven't got a lot of money unable to afford the kind of energy that will keep them alive. And so you take steps to deal with that situation. Even if you believe in all of that, for example, you make an arrangement with other providers of energy, oil and gas, to provide it to your electric generating apparatus in the event that local sources of oil and gas are incapacitated for any reason at all. You do that. That's what the grids in this country are. Most states, all states, except for Texas, are parts of two large grids, they're called, electric grids, so that you can get electricity from a neighboring state, You pay a little extra, maybe to have it transmitted over a longer distance, but basically you can tap into other people. Cold spells in this country, because we're a large country, are very, very rarely national. They happen in localities. Large parts of America had no problem at all while Texas was having unusual cold, and that's the normal situation. So the logic would have been for Texas to be part of the national grid so that if and when something like this happened, they could get gas or oil or electricity from other participating members of the grid. And we know very well, as does Mr. Hogan, why that wasn't done. Because if you're part of the grid, you are subject to governmental, in this case, federal regulations and supervision. And you know why? Because we've had these experiences in the past and we want the federal government. We bring the federal government in to insist that the preventive measures are taken, that you've made provision for what to do if there's extreme cold or extreme heat, or God forbid there's a war and a bomb drops on your electric facility, which is what countries at war do to each other, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You take those things into account and you have to show the regulator that you've taken appropriate measures for these eventualities. By disconnecting from the federal grid, what the energy companies in Texas did was substitute a local Texas regulatory commission, which is much easier, and I'm going to be polite now, for the energy companies to control, either through donations or political contributions or downright bribery. I wouldn't know whether that happened in this case or not. But I sure wouldn't be surprised they wanted a local pliable Texas tile commission, which, if you look into it, did very little supervision and did very little of what the federal government would have done. The bottom line, it's more profitable for a company doing this kind of energy business in Texas to not be part of the federal And so they chose the more profitable route, which closed them off from what could have saved those lives, those millions of people that I believe are still boiling water, suffering power limits, and so on. There is no excuse, even using the mentality of Mr. Hogan, you did not have to put Texas through this. That was a decision made, by the energy companies in that state with the complicity of the governmental apparatus that they control.
0: Given the fact that we all need electricity in modern society to sustain ourselves, our families, our communities, our society, and given the fact that this is like air that we breathe or food that we eat, but something that is more or less, the technology is more or less uniform. It's not like a capitalist decides to build a new electrical grid system and through risk and innovation and hard work, create something brand new. These are known technologies. And when you think about all the problems people are having around the country with utilities, I'm thinking back to what happened in California with PG&E.
1: Or an Enron 20 years ago. That's right.
0: Or Enron. Exactly. Enron. I mean, after a meticulous investigation, California determined that the famous Camp Fire was caused by electrical transmission lines owned and operated by Pacific Gas and Electricity. PG&E pled guilty to 84 counts of manslaughter in the campfire and you know, a lot of those people, a lot of those people who are pretty middle class, they still don't have homes. This is now years later. They didn't get bailed out. They didn't have the right kind of insurance because of the way insurance works, that it's very parsed in particular. The insurance companies cover some things, but not all things. A lot of those folks are homeless. As a matter of fact, I think I mentioned this to you in an earlier episode, but I'm aware of the status of some of those folks because the National Union of the Homeless, which is an organization from the 60s and early 70s, has reconstituted itself and is growing, where the homeless themselves become the organizers of all of these different union chapters, the Union of the Homeless. The Campfire Union of the Homeless is predominantly middle class, uh, white people who have been, as a consequence of this failure of the PG&E, the negligence, they've lost everything, and they're now homeless, and they're pretty much perennially homeless now.
1: I don't want to depress people, but there's another dimension to this. Let me add it here. When the Enron disaster happened, you again had a supply and demand that was manipulated in this case by Enron, using it to get very high money flow into the company that could play this game, a monopoly game that is really quite old in human history. They were found guilty also. But here's the interesting thing that people ought to think about. Much of the damage done by Enron, many of the losses incurred by the strategies Enron used to pull off its scam, the state decided to cover the cost and to recoup some of that money by having a surcharge added to the utility bills of the people of California, who have been paying more for the last, get it now, 20 years. 20 years of extra monthly utility bill payments to begin to compensate for all of the losses and damages a private profit-seeking capitalist enterprise, Enron Corporation, caused, just like the decisions of a few energy companies in Texas, caused death, destruction, suffering, loss, and what are they going to do? Actually, beginning to hear in the press that they're going to try to come up with some way to compensate some of the people. Who lost, and some of the companies who lost out from all of this, and how are they going to do it? Yep, the suggestion is a surcharge on the utility bills that are being sent, you know, to millions of Texas households reproducing to California. And for me, as a critic, here's my astonishment. This is a failure of the capitalist economic system to manage something as fundamental as our energy. It's like watching the failure of our private capitalist health system to manage the COVID-19 disaster. Profit meant you didn't build and you didn't produce and you didn't stockpile the tests and the masks and the ventilators. And so we in America here have 4% of the population and 20% of the COVID deaths. I mean, what ought to be the center of conversation is maybe there's something wrong with leaving things as important as our public health, and our public energy in the hands of companies who tell you themselves that profit is their number one objective, profit is their bottom line, profit is what they're in business to achieve. Well, we see where that led them and what it has left for us and a rational society would be discussing whether the problem here isn't about this or that detail in the grid, out of the grid, but whether or not we have a system that is predisposed to producing these horrifically inadequate responses to a virus, which has been part of human history for millennia, or to cold spells, which are hardly new either.
0: Yeah. And, you know, when you think about the way the system works, it really brought to my mind the point that you're making that ultimately the people, the quote, consumers, meaning the people who use electricity, meaning all of us, they get penalized through a surcharge to pay for the failure of the capitalist company. It just reminded me that, again, when the banks are convicted of, you know, laundering drug money, you know, and there was that big investigation fifteen years ago, and like every major bank was convicted of laundering drug money. And they ended up paying like fines. You know, they paid a fraction of the money they made from actually doing the laundering of drug money. And it was all the big banks. But none of the executives actually went to jail. I mean, that's what one of the things that made Enron sort of special was that it was kind of a a spectacular trial, and some of them went to jail. But again, Usually, no personal accountability. With the lawsuits over opioids, you know, here's a, an article again Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family, they're being sued. They have to settle. They're settling for hundreds of millions of dollars in the lawsuits. They don't go to jail. They're not really held personally accountable. And then the companies are able to take the settlements as tax breaks and move the loss on their sheet going forward. I'm looking at an article, clearly a game opioid lawsuit settlements appear aimed at giving tax breaks to drug firms. I'll read one sentence to you. When Oklahoma Attorney General Mike Hunter announced in March that Purdue Pharma would pay the state $270 million to settle a lawsuit linked to the opioid epidemic, he declared the agreement, quote, begins a new chapter for those struggling with addiction well not really it turns out that the money goes to the state actually not not to the individual victims but moreover the pharmaceuticals that did all this that promoted opioids that knew what they were doing that benefited from addiction addiction was their business model when they have to finally pay something back in the form of lawsuits it can be used as a tax deduction for multiple years going forward
1: Yeah. It's, uh, you know, this is a system that works that way. You know, at the apex of every capitalist enterprise, a factory, an office, a store, is a very, very small minority of people. The owner, perhaps the owner's family, a board of directors, if it's a corporate form. Boards of directors typically have somewhere between 10 and 20 people on them. The vast majority of the people in every enterprise, are the employees, and they are precisely the ones that are excluded from the key decisions. The tiny minority at the top, which is in no way accountable to the majority, the employees, employees do not vote on who gets to be the CEO, they have absolutely nothing to say about it. They can't hire and fire the CEO, but he can hire and fire them. I mean, the inequality, the inequity of their relative position, we all know. And then we seem somehow to be surprised that those at the top take their position and use it to enrich themselves. So they become the millionaires and eventually the billionaires while the rest of us are wondering how we're going to get our kid through college. I mean, when you set up a system like that, you really can't be surprised if the people who sit at the top of that system, when they take off their hat as a corporate executive and put on their hat as a governmental administrator they end up seeing the world pretty much in the same way. And so they organize the tax laws and they organize the budget spending like they did their business in the big corporation. For a few people at the top, everything is made wonderful and cooperative. And for the rest, uh, you're on your own. Fend as best you can. There was no hesitation in Texas that I'm aware of about those commissioners overseeing an energy industry that obviously was unprepared for the cold, unprepared to take the steps necessary to avoid a cascading disaster so that cold meant you couldn't have water, meant that you couldn't have heat. I mean, It, it is easy to foresee all of this. Any expert knows all of it. They just don't care, and that's not because there's something deficient In them as human beings, it's their accommodation, their adjustment to a system set up to work like this.
0: I want to ask you in our final question here this is a problem that's going to get worse. We know it's going to get worse. These are a combination, it's an intersection of problems with infrastructure, coordination, planning, the profit motive, regional divisions, local divisions. Everybody has their everybody, meaning different capitalists, have their hand in the till. What should be done? I think that there should be, and we, all of us who believe in a better system, believe in social justice, believe in economic justice, we should forge a movement, a coast to coast, east to west, north to south movement to take over every utility company. And there are some examples where even within the framework of the existing capitalist system, just municipalizing utility companies creates a great savings for the customer and also makes it more rational rather than all of these utility companies, which actually don't do anything. They're just gatekeepers. They're like the toll keeper you run into on the throughway. You know, they're just there and you have to pay them to get through. They're really, truly a, a financial gatekeeper but let's just get rid of them. And if we made this a mass movement, it seems to me this is the kind of thing, whether somebody's Republican or a Democrat, whether they live in the North or the South, the East or the West, this is something that just makes sense to the working class and to most of people in society.
1: Your listeners might be interested to know that there are, last time I looked, it was over 2000 public utility companies in this country. There was a movement back in the 19th century of people who were socialists and co-op people at the time. And so many communities set up precisely to avoid being at the mercy of these private profit-driven companies. They set up municipal electric companies, and they were so successful that what you're just saying is the truth. Even when Republicans or conservatives took over as mayor or leaders of these communities, there was such support for the public utility for having it under the control of the people who depended on it that they would not think about selling it to a private company or letting a private company come in and replace it, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a proven successful mechanism and much advertising by the private utility companies is a none too subtle effort to get people not to think about what you just said. But here's a a final thought. Look, we ought to run the electric industry by a combined portion of the people. On the one hand, those who work there and make their living and depend on their jobs, and on the other, the customer, the people who depend on electricity. And the the running of the enterprise should be a joint activity of those who depend on it for their livelihoods and those who depend on it for the service it provides. We don't need the middle man or woman. We don't need the merchant. We don't need the capitalist. We can do this ourselves. And when we do, we will be sure to do what private companies don't. Because for us, having a secure source of electricity is a number one priority. We're not going to shortchange that process to make some extra profit on the other end. And the profit we do make, maybe a little less, but it'll go into the coffers of the city and help fund services for all rather than becoming the private profit for a few. It's a good idea. It's been popular in America before. It could very well be very popular again.
0: That was Professor Richard Wolf. He is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work, the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Be sure to check out his work at rdwolf.com, and that's rdwolff.com. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners.